Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to FX Moment, which is part of a FIC Focus podcast series. My name is Audrey Child Freeman. I'm the Chief G10 FX Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And today I'm joined by Stephen Chu, who is our Asia Chief FX and Rate Strategist. Today we're talking about the recent BRICS extension announcements and how this has rekindled the de-dollarization theme in the market. So basically, the cyclically dollar bullish case has been very overwhelming throughout the summer and the dollar has been extremely resilient doing really well uh, but in at the same time the structural headlines that we've had this summer have been quite negative and quite and have been really confirming what is a, a dollar bearish context when it comes to structural consideration um, it is just, and the reason why the dollar hasn't really traded on the back of that is just because of the unchallenged dollar status on the international monetary system. And, you know, the structurally bearish dollar story is hardly new and it's really not having an impact on the currency. So the US rating downgrade by Fitch uh, was a good reminder of the debt and fiscal predicaments uh, that's still challenging the, the US economy. Uh, and more recently, the, the BRICS extension uh, announcements and the hint that uh, the group may be moving away from the dollar when it comes to trade has also revived the de-dollarization talks and, and, and market uh, attention on this theme. Uh, and, and that's very interesting. Uh, as I said, it's not driving the dollar for the time being, but it's something that's worth giving some thought. So uh, first, and here we have Stephen, who's our uh, EM expert, and he's going to give us our, his expertise on, on this whole theme of de-dollarization uh, and an insight, first of all, on, on the BRICS extension. And let's start with uh, which country uh, are involved and what would be potentially, uh, Stephen, the economic impact of, of an expanding uh, union from economic zone for, for those countries. Right. Thank you, Audrey. So back in August, um, there was an agreement at the BRICS summit in South Africa. So basically, that's to expand the current BRICS group, adding six new members to the existing five BRICS members. And that expansion will be effective on the 1st of Janu January next year. Now, this would be the first expansion since the BRIC countries added South Africa in 2010. Now, first thing first, I don't know whether there will be an official tech for these 11 members. And probably market players will call them BRICS 11 or BRICS plus, just like the OPEC plus. But otherwise, um, I found one way to remember all the new members is by calling them BRICS Aussie. Now, with Aussie, we're not talking about the Australian dollar, but uh, the Aussie stands for A-U-S-I-E-E, -E, which is Argentina, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, and finally, Ethiopia. So these are the, all the new members, so Aussie. Now, um, the intention of the expansion um, could be to create an anti-US, anti-dollar team. Now, of course, um, 
just by creating a bigger um, BRICS 11, we will not topple the US-led and dollar-led global economy overnight, as others mentioned. And certainly it won't cost much short-term market impact either. So it's re really for the longer-term development of the world. But this is certainly consistent with the, the trend that we saw recent years since the trade war and then the pandemic, that we are seeing some sort of deglobalization and bipolarization, now centering around obviously the US and China. So I think it's more likely than not that we're going to see some escalation in geopolitical tension on the back of it. Um, uh, it's just we're going to have to wait for more news flow. Like nobody can, can tell what's going to happen, of course. But interestingly, if you try to visualize all 11 BRICS members on a map, so you put out a world map and look at it, so you can see how the new members, especially those from the Middle East and North Africa, so geographically, they actually tighten the link between the existing members. So Russia, China, India, obviously on one side, and the other side we have Brazil. And, but now we are linking um, all the members together. So you sort of see a belt that's cutting across the world map. So in that sense, um, it means a more compact supply chain that's somewhat more self-sustainable. And certainly it's interesting that this actually cut across, um, so sort of like isolating North America and Western Europe. Now, obviously, we're not going to speculate what does this mean, but for those that have studied history and have a long, longer-term insights, we'll see that this there is an obvious reason behind doing this expanding expansion. Sorry. So, in terms of economic impact, I mean, how did you have a look on, on at the numbers uh, in terms of you know what increase in in GDP or what's the uh, GDP weight that this zone would have? Oh, yes, certainly. Um, so on paper, at least it's very impressive. So um, basically, um, the new BRICS 11 is certainly unrivaled. If we just simply sum up the sizes of their individual economies, so not talking about any other cohesion um, benefit out of that, but by just adding the numbers according to Bloomberg Economics, so these 11 members account for 36% of total GDP as of last year. Now, 36% is huge. If you look at the G7 economies, it's only 30%. And more importantly, our economists expect these 11 members to have a share of over 45% when it's 2040. So that's nearly half of the world. And we talked about self-sustainability earlier. Now, um, of course, these 11 members are certainly very capable, given that uh, we have basically the world's top energy and food exporters and importers here. And also the incentive of inviting um, several oil exporters like UAE, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, again, it's very self-explanatory, like why they want to have these members, because we know China is the world's largest oil importer and India is also a net oil importer. Now, uh, Russia, Argentina, and Brazil, they are the major food exporters, of course. So among this group, again, we have all the key food and energy exporters and consumers. Now, and last but not least, um, Ethiopia could be more puzzling to some people. But uh, we had a look at it. It's actually, so its top export was actually gold, which is like about over 20% of its total exports. Now, gold is very important. And uh, again, we shouldn't really speculate here, but the intention, again, after securing food and energy, now, gold is an ultimate safe haven. So when do you need food, energy, and gold? Well, during war times. So um, not saying what, whether it's going to happen and when that's going to happen, but having all this secured is certainly making these members better prepared for any geopolitical escalation in the future. 
So what did they actually say when it comes to, um, you know, the use of the dollar? I mean, clearly, you know, there, there were a few months ago, there were some headlines about a single currency. But that's, you know, we covered that actually uh, in a couple of notes that we published on the, ter on the terminal. And that's really not feasible. Uh, so not a monetary union, but even, you know, if they were to move away from uh, using the dollar for from transaction, um, I mean, what it's it's very difficult to quantify the impact. I think at this at this moment, and also it's very difficult to seriously understand uh, what alternative currencies they be using and what's the incentive, you know, economically for them to do that. Uh, you know, the politics you can kind of see it, but the economics. Uh, I think are more difficult to understand, and you know we all know that economics drive politics. So, so what's your take on all that? Yeah, um, certainly uh, moving away from the dollar will be very difficult. Now, um, I don't think they actually uh, pl plan anything specific on that. They've talked about lowering the reliance on the dollar, obviously, and then uh, again earlier, I think uh, some of the BRICS members actually talked about a common currency. But it's all talks, and it's very hard to implement basically as you, you and I both know, it's more practical to just trade in an other existing currency that's uh, kind of like a rivalry to the US dollar and can circumvent the US less sanctions. And there's really only one choice out there, which is the yuan, if you want to circumvent all the sanctions from the US and also probably Europe as well. Um, so to some extent, I think this entire BRICS expansion and other following development is certainly constructive and positive for the UN in the long run. But again, I think we have to be more pragmatic and we shouldn't be over, overly uh, optimistic about the, the, the consequence or implication about the UN globalization because um, it's going to have to take time for UN to be accepted by a lot of the users. So it's certainly not as dramatic as some of the people out there saying that oh, so this is going to displace the dollar. I mean, it's just not practical and it's kind of impossible, actually, if I have to put it that way. The dollar is still the world's most dominant settlement and reserve currency. Now, um, so um, let's talk a little bit about uh, politics and economics. Uh, so again, it's not all skies are blue. So it's certainly too early for the G7, G20, or even the world to panic about the expansion in the BRICS. So there are a lot of cultural differences and also differences in national interests amongst all these BRICS countries. And this this is just one of the reasons why it's not that straightforward. Like whatever plans they have, whatever agreements they have going forward, it's very hard for them to implement them just because different parties, they have different considerations and interests. Uh, very simple. For example, uh, the push for the expansion this time was largely driven by China. Now, it sort of had the backing of Russia and South Africa, but we also read news saying about India and Brazil actually has some concerns about this. They didn't really oppose it, but they do show concerns. So to what extent these economies can collaborate and also with the new members, it's really a very big question mark. I think before we see real actions, we shouldn't really um, overestimate the impact of what they're going to do. So in particular, China and India, everybody knows they still haven't resolved their border disputes. And also more importantly, Importantly, eventually, if India really overtakes China to be the biggest growth driver, not just among the BRICS countries, but even for the entire world, then certainly um, there, there could be a risk that China may not want to collaborate with India. And uh, we already saw that this year, Indian's population already tops the world and overtook China. And uh, even our economists, 
they forecast China's growth to slow to as low as 2% in 2040 versus and still around 6% for India. So you can see India could be a very important member and it's hard to collaborate if China sort of have a rivalry mindset against them. And um, meanwhile, on the current front, so it's very obvious again uh, why they want the oil exporters in because eventually I think the current members can sort of lure these exporters to price and trade oil in an other currency apart from the dollar. It's very likely to be the yuan, because that's what people talk about, petrol yuan instead of petrol dollar. But again, we know that reducing the dollar's role in all trades, it will be impactful if it happens. But it's kind of um, impossible, impractical, again, right now, just because we know Middle East economies, they hold dollar reserves from their oil sales. And their currencies are basically packed to the dollar. So in order to reprice their major export in another currency, they will have to care about their reserves. So they will have to get get rid or convert their resource into another currency because that's their assets before they think about pricing oil in another currency. So that's going to be a lot of hustle and a lot of planning and it's not going to happen overnight, at least not now. So that's probably why, for example, when we look at Saudi Arabia, so last year they sort of talked about considering selling oil in yuan instead of dollar. And we don't see any follow-up after that. It's purely talk. And we know why, why that could be the case because Saudi Arabia tend to use talks as a threat or hit back in order to obtain support from the U.S., for example, military aid. So that's why it's always just based on talks. So that's why, all in all, there's still a lot of headwinds and difficulties um, out of this block. So before we get too excited about the economic implication, I think we should just step back and also um, be aware of the whole picture. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that, um, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, it feels like the there's some kind of political drive and that's not even straightforward because you know of the kind of relations within the potent the, the members themselves and the the dynamics and the, the the geopolitical dynamics within the members but when it comes to the economics and the practice how practical it would be to move away from from the dollar in in terms of trade for instance I mean, to me, it feels like we go around circle and, you know, we all end up back to it's not practical and the dollar for now is is unchallenged. Um, so this, this, you know, what you described, all aspects that you touch on today are very, very interesting uh, and very relevant. I think the market, you know, this is a theme that will come and go in the market. I just don't feel that for the time being, the dollar will trade on this. Um, but it's certainly uh, very uh, important to touch on it uh, as strategists uh, and, and as economists. Um, I just would like to end uh, with the, the podcast today with some numbers, which I feel are still very um, relevant. And when you hear about you know, the demise of the dollar, the de-dollarization theme, I think it's always very important to go back to those numbers. If you look at the dollar on the international monetary system, it's unchallenged. I mean, six, nearly 60%, I think it's 59.3, in global reserves are still denominated in, in dollars. Now, the dollar skeptic will tell me, well, it was 20, it was 70% to two decades ago, but we still, you know, over over 50%. So it's still there as the main global currency reserve unit. Um, and then other things like 65% of international debts is still denominated in dollar. 
over 55% uh, of loans are denominated in dollar. And even when it comes to daily FX turnover, uh, it's still over 40% in dollar. Uh, and same thing for uh, global daily, daily SWIFT payments, uh, over 50, 40% uh, in dollar. So for me, in terms of, of challenges, and I put my G10 FX strategies cap on, I, I kind of feel that for now, in the near term, the euro is probably more of a challenger to the dollar than the UN. Uh, I mean, this, as I said, this is more of a 5 to 10 year view as opposed to a 20 to 30 year view. Uh, but I think the main problem, you know, again, for Europe, we also go around circle. The main problem that we have is the um, what I would refer to as the incomplete nature of monetary union uh, with fiscal and banking union still incomplete. Once we move um, closer on, on that direction, on those two points, I think the euro will actually pick up. Uh, in terms of diversification strategies, in particular in global reserves. But this is, for now, there's still some homework to be done um, for, for Europe uh, on that front. Um, so I think this concludes um, our FX podcast for today. Um, any question on what we discussed, please reach out to Stephen or to myself, uh, you can find us on, on, the, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Um, I hope you found today's podcast interesting. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.